Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. All right, I think we're going to get underway here. Uh, the handout that is back there is the same one as last week. Uh, a four-page handout was ambitious, and guess what? I didn't get through it all. Um, but that's okay. We're going to keep going. We're in in this phase where it's all of the different trials that Paul is, is going through, and... Uh, to us, it might get a little bit repetitive um, because it all kind of sounds the same and we don't understand it. But if if you lived back then, you would understand that this this is all normal-ish. Um, I, there are things about it that aren't normal, but it's tr- it's trying to follow the normal flow of justice, uh, just like. In our system, you have your regular court, and then you have a court of appeals, and you know, on up to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Romans had their own judicial system too, and Paul ends up basically going through the whole system. As at the end, he appeals to Caesar. Caesar's at the very top of uh, all justice in the Roman Empire, and uh, Paul wants to go to the very top because he realizes that if his fate is left in the hands of the locals, there is not going to be justice done, uh, one. But two, he has that message from the Holy Spirit that he's going to Rome. And so Paul is is willing to go to Rome, even though he doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. This this could be the end for him, but he's willing to follow that path. So last week we got into uh, Paul going to Jerusalem and just to pick up some of the breadcrumbs again to see how this is building and how things sort of change. We had an Acts 21, he visits with James. And there, as he visits with James, James is the apostle. This is a, a friendly visit. But in 2121, we hear James refer to some of the issues that are possibly going to rise up. That these Jews know a little bit about Paul. And they don't necessarily know the facts. They know rumors. They know stories. And it says in 2121, they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So this is sort of hanging over Paul's head. And so he undergoes these purification rituals. He pays for some people who have undergone a vow to show he does not forsake Moses, that he teaches a certain understanding of Moses. That is that we do not obey the commands of Moses in order to be saved. Rather, faith in Jesus is our only hope. So that's there. But then it gets worse when we turn to his arrival in the temple. Because in 2127, we found out there were Jews from Asia that were there. Remember, this is the time of Pentecost. This is one of those Old Testament feasts that Jews are commanded, male Jews, to bring uh, their sacrifices, to bring their offerings to the temple in Jerusalem. The, the city is sort of swollen from all of these extra people. And there are Jews from Asia that know about Paul and know that Paul is in the city. And they're the ones that are... Uh, painted as the primary instigators, especially when they see that he is in the temple. And so in 2128, these these, uh, Jews from Asia, they cry out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. 
So they sort of informally, this isn't really a, a trial, but the charges that they lay against Paul, the things that they say to get the mob riled up against Paul is that he teaches against the people, that is against all of the Jews, against the law that is against the law of Moses and against this very place, this temple. And fortunately, Paul was saved from mob justice happening when the Roman military tribune, we haven't technically read his name, but he'll, it'll be given shortly. His name is Claudius Lysias. He, as Paul is being dragged outside of the temple because they're going to kill him, and as this mob is here, the military tribune steps in because remember, uh, the temple is there, but the Romans have built a fort just outside the temple walls. And it was a very large building, large enough that it was higher than the temple. They could see over the walls. They can see when there's, you know, some kind of commotion. They can prepare their forces because the Romans are there for peace. They don't want any uprisings. They don't want any rebellions. And the Jews are notorious for this. So the, the Romans are always on guard, and especially at these times of festivals. One, because the population of the city is greatly increased. But two, because this is a time when the Jews especially would be thinking about their own identity, the promises of God, we are his people, and why are these dirty Romans here? This is a dangerous time, and the Romans want to make sure nothing bad happens. So Claudius Lysias is there. It's a good thing for Paul. He steps in, he prevents Paul from being done away with there. But in 2133, uh, he's, he's trying to figure out what's going on. So he's, he's inquiring, what, why, why are you dragging him out here? What has this man done? What's going on? He's trying to inquire, but the crowd is just going crazy and he cannot figure out anything from the crowd. So, we can't really begin a trial uh, until you can have a court. And it's clear that this isn't going to be a place where any of that's going to happen. But he's going to keep him under custody because Claudius Lysias' own suspicions are that Paul probably is one of these uh, bad guys. He thinks that he is an Egyptian terrorist, an anarchist, uh, because there was one such Egyptian man who raised up an army of 4,000. And, you know, with all of these people there in the temple against Paul, it seems like he's not a good guy. But he quickly finds out that, no, Paul is not this man. In fact, he uh, is a, uh, a citizen of uh, a city called Tarsus, which would have been not a... Uh, unfamiliar city. It was a pretty large city uh, in the empire. It would have been well known. So he knows that about him. He knows from just talking with him that he speaks Greek. He knows Greek. He's not just a, a, a Jew here, a local. And so all of these things are going on. And then Paul steps in and wants to address the crowd, the crowd that so far has not really been helpful at all, because Lysias tried to get from the crowd, you know, what's going on, and he couldn't figure out anything. Paul, for some reason, thinks that he has something important to say. He wants to address them. And what does he do when he addresses the crowd? He tries immediately to put to rest these charges, that he is against the people, that is the Jews, that he is against the law of Moses, that he is against the temple. And so as he talks to them in chapter 22, begins in verse 3, he goes through and he, he describes his biography, who he is. I'm, I'm a loyal Jew, guys. I, I'm, I'm one of you. Um, in fact, I'm not just one of you. I'm probably better than most of you. I, I was a Pharisee. I learned from the rabbi Gamaliel who would have been well known, uh, his reputation. And Paul is able to say all of this. Not only that, but I, I was a persecutor of Christians. That's how serious I was about my zeal for the Lord, about following his ways. But then there's a change. There's a dramatic change. And he describes his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. 
to explain to the people, even though this is where I started and I am a loyal Jew, I'm, I'm, I'm now known as uh, somebody who believes in Jesus, somebody who is proclaiming this good news all over. Why would this happen? Well, so far you should know it's not because he wasn't serious about God. It's not because he was not a follower of God's ways. It, in fact, is because he found out that he was persecuting the one that he believed in. And God himself, Jesus, comes to him, and that is the dramatic change. Jesus is the reason why he's doing all of this. So it's not on my initiative that I am who I am. This was not my idea. My idea was killing Christians, persecuting them. That's what I thought was right until I was taught otherwise. And then at the end, he goes on to say, and after this happened, I go back to Jerusalem. Remember, he was on his way up to Damascus, and that's where uh, the conversion happens as he goes to see Ananias. But he comes back to the temple, and he's praying, and he thinks that he is going to be among the Jews, his people. That's where his heart is. That's where his zeal is. Except Jesus, in a vision, says, no, you have your ideas, Paul, but I have a different plan for you, and I am sending you to the Gentiles. So his loyalty, he's trying to say, has always been to God. It's always been to the Lord. Paul is not doing any of this on his own, of his own initiative. He is loyal to God always. His story changes because God steps in. God changes the story. But the crowd is angry. The crowd is passionate. And like I said, I don't know if Paul had more to his story to say or not, or if he meant to end it here, where uh, Jesus says that I'm, I'm sending you out to the Gentiles. But whatever, the crowd at this point in Paul's message cannot bear it any longer. Um, they, in their zeal for their own people, are very hostile to Gentiles. That's the whole reason why the Jews from Asia uh, bring up all of these problems, because Paul is treating Gentiles as equal, as equal to the Jews. But it's not even that, because in their mind, treating them as equal to the Jews would mean that Paul would say to all of them, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow all of the, the laws and the traditions and the customs of Moses. But he doesn't even do that. He teaches this new equality, that Jews and Gentiles are equal, that they are brothers and sisters, one in Christ, through faith in Jesus. And, and to them, they, they just they cannot believe that message. They don't want to believe that message. And so that marks really the beginning of when the formal trials are going to begin. Because now that the crowd is, again, crazy, uh, Claudius Lysias knows that he's, he's not going to get any kind of real justice, any kind of real uh, court to happen without some kind of more formal hearing. Uh, there, there needs to be order to, to how justice happens. And so Claudius Lysias is going to take Paul back to the, to the fort, to the prison, and then he'll begin the normal trial. Now, a normal trial, if you can't figure out why somebody uh, is, is in your hands as the Roman authorities, he tried that initially, he tried to ask the crowd what's going on and he couldn't figure it out, is that you would then flog, whip, beat the person in your custody to extract from them what they've done wrong. You know, that whole idea of you're innocent until proven guilty. Part of that is there, but also there's this great suspicion. If, if all of these people are against you, you must have done something wrong. Fess up. Tell us what it is that you have done wrong. So it's intended to get a confession. It's intended to, you know, make sure that they will not lie under oath. But here, 
Paul has not said this so far. He said that he is a native of Tarsus to Claudius Lysias. Here he says, I'm a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, he has special rights that other people do not have. One of those rights is he cannot be interrogated by flogging. That, that is illegal. And so if Claudius Lysias would have flogged him, he would be liable. He would be uh, punishable for doing this to a Roman citizen. Roman law is even above the, the governor of this area. They can't just do whatever they want. So that's what we, what, yep. Um, you don't, you, they could have, but it's, it's a, crime to lie about being a citizen so if in if you say that you're a citizen and they're going to take that seriously they they will do more investigations and if, if they find out that you have lied about this uh it would have been better for you to just accept the first punishment um yeah so it's, it's a it's a high crime roman citizenship is not something to just fool around with so when somebody says it yeah it, they, they pretty much are going to believe it Claudius Lysias has Saul taken, Paul taken away. Um, he's treated like a criminal, but not in the worst possible way. So he's still going to sit in jail, but he's given a little bit of freedom. Um, and that's going to be important in, in a little bit. The first real trial he has, it's under Claudius Lysias's authority. It's under the Roman authority, but they convene the Jewish council, the Jewish Sanhedrin, because he sort of sees this, this is, this is a, a Jewish issue. So um, you, you guys are, are going to have to be the ones that, that are going to formally bring charges against him. You're, you're going to have to be the ones to try, to, to try this case. He's going to kind of supervise it, make sure that everything does happen, you know, according to the law. Um, but when this trial happens, that's when things kind of really change. Up until this point, the main charges are he's teaching against the laws of Moses. He's teaching against the Jews. Uh, he's teaching against the temple. That was the initial thing that got the crowd riled up. But here, very quickly, it, it changes, um, which is really interesting. So uh, we're in ver uh, chapter 20 to 30. Uh, that's the beginning when he gets to um, the council and chapter 23. And Paul has his chance to address this council. And uh, already things look very grim. Uh, Paul looks intently at the council and says, Brothers, that's interesting, right? He's, he's addressing them as, as kind of equals. Um, no, normally, when we hear this from Paul, brothers or sisters, uh, he's addressing the faith, the faith family, right? But here he, he's going to already basically assert, hey, we're, we are one family, um, which is really interesting because of what's going to happen in just a little bit. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Sounds okay, right? I, I've lived before God and I have a good conscience. So what, what is Paul trying to say about himself? Yeah, I, he says I, the laws, I, I follow those things. I, I, I don't feel like I have any, any guilt. I, I don't feel like I am uh, neglecting anything. I have no problem uh, in my standing before God, according to the things that, that we understand, which, um, again, to us doesn't really sound that bad, but what's the response? The high priest, Ananias, he commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. You're a poor, miserable sinner, man. Don't say that you have a good standing before God. Um, it's, it's hard to know exactly what elicited so strong a response, except that the high priest there, 
he knows a little bit about Paul. He knows that he is proclaiming the good news about Jesus. He, he knows that Paul is not living the same way that they are in that strict manner, following all of the rules, the traditions. And so when Paul says, I'm living, I'm living good. I have a good conscience before God. There's a harsh dissonance there. Okay. Because they would, they would say, you know, to have a good conscience before God means you follow those rules to the letter. Remember how riled up the Pharisees got with Jesus and his disciples? Jesus, your disciples aren't washing their hands. Jesus, your disciples aren't fasting. Jesus, your disciples are, are doing work on the Sabbath. These are the rules. These are the things that you must do. And if you are not doing these things, and if you are teaching against them, you're, you're teaching against God. You are teaching the people to disregard God's word. And so it's it's tantamount to blasphemy in their ears. We, we understand his words a lot differently. We know how he can have a clean conscience, right? It's not because he's perfect. It's because he knows forgiveness. It's because he knows that, that Jesus has washed him clean. He knows all of this past. He knows what he has done. That's not why he has a good conscience. But everybody in this room, this council, they don't understand things the same way. And so when he says that, it's like he, he, Paul, is rejecting everything that they believe is so important. Counterpoint. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me struck? Um, them's fighting words, right? This, the, Ananias is, is the, the chief priest, the high priest. This is the, the guy who's like in charge of all of the temple stuff, all of the sacrificial stuff. You know, in, in the Jewish way of thinking, the priests are the ones that are the closest to God's holy presence. And here, Paul is calling this guy a whitewashed wall. That's not a compliment, right? You, you put on a good show on the outside, but inside, it's a mess. Inside is poison. Um, and <laughs> remember, how did Paul start his message? Brothers! You, you, and, and now he calls him a whitewashed wall, but... Why did he say, why is he saying this? Because he just ordered Paul to be struck. And Paul is saying, even among the Jews, there is a legal system. There is justice. And you don't just beat people without a trial, you know, without putting, putting, you need two or three witnesses and all of that. Um, they're not giving Paul a chance to explain himself. What, what did your words even mean? And even if they would have judged that blasphemy after Paul would have explained it, uh, again, Paul would stand on the testimony that, no, this, this is actually God's word. This is actually his message. So this, this whole scene, there are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with it and don't know exactly, you know, okay, here are Paul's words, but try to imagine what tone did he have when he spoke these words to the chief priest? You know, was he angry? Did he say it just in a matter-of-fact kind of way? Um, it, it, it's hard to know, but that's, that's kind of one of the interplay because, you know, he starts brothers, and now all of a sudden he's, he's ratcheting things up. Is Paul trying to, like, get them angry? And mad because that's exactly how you do that. Um, unlike Jesus, who suffers under the shears silently, um, you know, Jesus did have some some things that he said to Pilate and and others uh, that irked them. But this is like boom, right back in your face. Everybody there knows this, and they say, "Wait a second, would you revile God's high priest?" 
Here's Paul's defense. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So his defense sounds like it's what? Ignorance. And I, I want to say that you should believe him, but I, okay, so he's very familiar with the council, the Sanhedrin, right? Because what was his relationship 20 some years ago to the council in Sanhedrin? Well, he, he, had, he had their authority and he was, you know, doing that work of persecuting the church. So he worked with them. He had a good relationship. Well, this is, you know, over 20 years later, the same people are not on the Sanhedrin anymore. The chief priest back then is not the same chief priest anymore. And where has Paul been? Everywhere, except for Jerusalem, right? I mean, he's had a few stops in Jerusalem over the years, but that's, that's not really where his mind is. He's not, he's not thinking about life back in Jerusalem. He's got enough going on uh, in his journeys around um, so that he's not really thinking about all of that stuff. So, okay, you know, maybe he didn't realize who that was, who was speaking to him. But the other thing you got you to gotta think is, you know, based on the room, you know, the configuration, wh- who's seated where, what people are wearing, there, there had to have been something, right, that, that showed that this guy wasn't just a member of the Sanhedrin, but if he was the high priest, he's kind of like the president of it. He's, he's the, the leader, the one in charge. Um, I don't know. So it, it, he says that he didn't know. There's, there's one other thing that might be there. Um, and again, this, this could sound like Paul's just digging his grave more of, you know, you're the high priest, but you're no high priest. You're no high priest because you are not living that that life, the life of a high priest. He he knows that again, to have him struck, that's that's breaking the law of Moses. That you're doing what you're not supposed to do. And you as the high priest above all people, you should know the laws of Moses. You should know uh, what to do and not to do. So I didn't know that you were the high priest because you of all people would have known that this is something that you should not have done. Yeah. The, yeah. 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 Uh, and and that's a, that that's the continuation of we have his words but we don't have his tone. How he would have said this nonverbals and whatever that that could completely change our interpretation of what's going on. There's one last one that it, it could be floating out there, but um I I I don't know. Paul Paul hasn't spoken this way a lot in Acts. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't, well, so here, here's, the, here's the other idea. Jesus is now the ultimate high priest, right? He is the one who goes before God. He is the one who made that sacrifice to atone for the sins of all people. So again, there's, there's this misunderstanding. You're not the high priest because you've been replaced because there is a newness to our faith and our teaching. We don't need a high priest anymore. It's all been fulfilled, just like the sacrifices and and all of that. I don't know if we can read that much into it. Like I said, that that, that requires a, a lot of theological stuff happening there in his response. What he exactly says here is uh, he sort of um, admits a little bit to doing what is wrong, I think, um, because, okay, he says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul's showing that he understands that there was a transgression, you know, that, that he shouldn't speak evil of somebody. What is going to be up for debate is, but is he really a ruler of our people or is he, as he called him, a whitewashed wall? 
Um, he has all the power. He has the name, but he has no heart. He, he is not really uh, doing what God called him to do. That's how the trial begins. It's not exactly good. But here's how Paul shrewdly changes the topic. Verse 6, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council. First, it seems like Paul can't read the room at all. He doesn't even know who the high priest is. Now, all of a sudden, he perceives that there are Pharisees and Sadducees that make up the council. Again, how Paul is figuring all of this stuff out, if there are more conversations, I, I, don't, I don't really know. Luke doesn't tell us. That wasn't the important thing. The important thing is he realizes that there is a mixture, and he uses that mixture to change everything. And this is what the trial is ultimately now going to be about. Brothers, he says, I just lost my page. Uh, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead. So he says, I'm here because of hope and the resurrection of the dead. Now, that's not at all what the crowd was saying. That's not how this all began. But these are Paul's words. And what happens? This is sort of like yelling fire into a crowded movie theater. This all of a sudden takes us a completely different direction. When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Here's the background information. Some of this we know because we, we've talked a little bit about these differences. But the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. When you die, that's it. They are materialists. This world, it exists, but what you see is what you get. And once you die, there is nothing. Jews, on the other hand, believe in a resurrection that there is life, there is death, and then God renews his creation. Creation is good. Creation is important. Creation has been corrupted, but it will be renewed and restored. This is a chief division among the people. There's other reasons and other things that are there, but this was a division. It stood. Uh, Jesus ran into it a couple of times in his ministry, usually uh, in... Uh, in the division of the people, the Sadducees tended to be more the upper class, the Pharisees more the lower classes. So Pharisaism, although, you know, we look at it and it's hogwash and all of that, it really was a democratizing force among the Jews because it, it said we all have equal standing before God if we do the stuff that we're supposed to. So like, it, it, it's all on me. If I would just follow the laws and the traditions, you know, I can have this high standing before God too. Uh, the Sadducees were more into the, the smells and the bells. They controlled the temple. And with the temple, there was a lot of power. There was a lot of money tied up to the temple. We know Jesus's interaction in the outer court with the money changers right? So they're, they're kind of into all of that. But the Sanhedrin as a whole has some of all of these people. So at first, they all hate Paul. But Paul has this very tricky way of reminding them, wait a second, you guys don't get along, do you? I remember. And just by bringing up this topic, the resurrection of the dead, this is a long-standing division it's not going to get solved in this little trial, but that will help Paul get out of this court, which never was going to do anything good for him, um, and, and get back to the, to the Romans. Okay, so we're in 23, 8, uh, 9. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So they are open to this vision that Paul had. 
There, there are supernatural things. There are things that we don't understand, the Pharisees are saying. God could have sent an angel. We read about angels all the time in the Old Testament. Sometimes they give messages that are hard for people to know or understand, but if it's from God, then, yeah, he had to listen to it. We, we, there's still problems. I, I, these guys aren't necessarily saying that we're becoming Christians now, but they're willing to hear Paul out a little bit more. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are like, there you guys go again, talking about your hocus pocus and your superstitions and all of this garbage. None of that exists, guys. And you, they're just, they're getting riled up. So Paul's little gambit from the beginning, he talks about how he's, he's a Jew's Jew, a Pharisee here that actually connects with some of the Pharisees. And they say, yeah, yeah, we're, we're we are brothers. We, we do have this in common. Disagreements, but we have this in common. And this is something that shows that we're closer to Paul than we are to the Sadducees sitting here with us. So they declare him innocent. We find nothing wrong in him. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them uh, by force and bring him into the barracks. So once again, thank you, Claudius Lysias. The Romans have helped Paul more than they have hurt him. It's, it's the, the Jews, his own people, who have rejected him again and again, who have done him violence, who have threatened to do violence. But in this trial... We, we don't really have a, a formal end to it. Uh, it. It just sort of devolves into violence. And so uh, Lysias steps in. Paul hasn't formally been charged. He hasn't formally been acquitted. He hasn't formally been found guilty. Every time he tries to do something in the process to the trial... It, it doesn't happen. He tries to figure out from the crowd. He can't figure it out. Well, let's have Paul interrogated. I can't have him interrogated. He's a Roman citizen. Let's bring him before the council in the Sanhedrin. They can't even figure it out. And by now, Claudius Lysias, again, he's a smart individual. He knows the, the people. He knows what he's kind of dealing with. He knows that he can't really force anything because that division among the people will always exist. And if he takes one side... He's angering another side. How, how do you make these people happy? You, you start to feel um, a little bit of sympathy maybe for the Romans. They're, they're doing their best to just make sure these people don't kill each other. Uh, and they, their minds are boggled. What does it take among you people? Um, we don't really know. The point is, that's completely different than where this began, isn't it? You teach against the laws of Moses, against the people, and against the temple. No, nobody in this part of the trial is saying any of that. Paul asserts, this is why I am on trial, because of the resurrection. Nobody's mentioned that so far. But when Paul mentions it, none of them, they, they don't, say, no, 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 that's not why you're here, Paul. It's, it's because of these other things. They sort of accept that. And once they accept that, this, this is a theological problem. It's, it's not going to be really solved by uh, Roman means of justice. A, well, he, he'll agree with anything that will get Paul down. As, as the high priest, he probably would have sided on the Sadducees part. Um, that, that tended to be where the, the high priests came from. They came from the Sadducee party rather than the Pharisees. So, uh, yeah, this, he, he would have no problem. He'd say, yep, that's just another reason why, why we want you gone. But the division of the people, it's, it's so problematic, even though just before this, they thought Paul was a problem. They can't agree to that. The other thing that you see is that this is all local. These are all people, residents of Jerusalem. Where did the mob start? Started in the temple, but at the instigation of the Jews from Asia. 
So once you get them out of the picture, they sort of, why is this guy here again? I, you know, I forgot. Uh, they, don't, they don't have all of the, the problems against Paul. Up until a couple of days ago, Paul wasn't even in the city. Who, you know, he wasn't even on their radar. Who cares? But the Jews uh, made, it, made it an issue. Okay, so this trial, he's not guilty. He's not innocent. It's just, it's, it's kind of a mess. What do you do if you're Claudius Lysias? I, I don't know. Uh, this word, though, comes to Paul. 2311, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So here's that planting of the seed. This, this is going to go on again and again, but don't worry. I, I've got your back. We're going to Rome. Next part, the Jews, uh, and probably were to understand the Jews from Asia, uh, they realized we wanted Paul dead by now, and that didn't happen. In fact, he's just tearing the Jews against one another, which, you know, again, in their mind, is more proof that Paul is against these people. And so they gather together a conspiracy. They take oaths that they'll neither eat nor drink till they had uh, killed Paul. They had more than 40 people who agreed to be part of it. What's next? They go to the chief priests and elders, and they inform them of this. And they, they're going to get Paul out of here uh, in a complete miscarriage of justice. This is, again, that mob mentality. We will have our way. Fortunately, and this is a, a thing that we don't learn anywhere else, verse 16, the son of Paul's sister. So Paul has a nephew in the city. He hears of the ambush. And so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul is under arrest, but he's given a little bit of leeway and freedom. He can have visitors come in and see him. His nephew comes, sees him, and tells him about this conspiracy. You know, Paul, when they, when, um, Elysius takes you from the fortress here to, uh, the, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin so they can, uh, continue this trial, they're gonna, they're gonna jump you and they're gonna kill you and it's all gonna be done. And so Paul says, Tell the Tribune. What, what am I supposed to do about this? I can't stop it. Tell the Tribune. The Tribune hears the, the, this boy and believes him. Uh, again, he, I think he's noticed how much passion Paul ar has aroused and knows that Paul is in this uh, pickle. And again, as the Roman commander, he has a duty to keep Paul safe. Justice is not done when uh, a mob comes up and kills somebody who is supposed to be on trial. Law and order, this is not. So he hears this, he takes it seriously, and he comes to the conclusion, we cannot have this trial here. It is never going to happen. I don't know what to do, but the only thing I can is move him up the ladder. Um, so I'm going to send him to the governor. The governor is named Felix, and he's out in Caesarea. So he sends him under very strong guard to make sure that nothing happens to him. Uh, that's there in verse 23. He calls two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So under the cover of darkness get out of town, over 400 soldiers guarding Paul. Uh, the conspiracy is 40 members. So when you have a force 10 times that, again, it shows how seriously uh, Claudius Lysias is taking this matter. And then he writes his letter of recommendation to send Paul to Felix. And one interesting thing that we learn about this, um, this is believed to be like, an exact copy of the letter, just the, the style. This, this fits with what uh, one Roman official would send to the other. And the beginning of it, Claudius Lysias, that's who's sending it, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix. That word, His Excellency, uh, at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, 
he addresses that gospel and says that this is to most excellent Theophilus. That word, most excellent, is the same adjective used for Felix. Again, to go back to what we talked about at the very beginning of these classes, we don't know who this Theophilus is, but when people say he must have been somebody important, maybe even somebody powerful, it's because of connections like this. You don't just address a random person, his excellency or most excellent so-and-so. That is a term of respect and honor that somebody has to earn. They have to be at a high level of society. And I'm not saying that Luke wrote to Felix. I'm just giving Felix as an example of somebody who's in power. He's a governor of a province of the Roman Empire. And that's the kind of person that's addressed this way. So that, that number one is interesting. Uh, number two, what do we learn from the letter that he sends to, uh, to Felix? Here's what he says. He's catching him up on the case so far. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Are you okay with that as a good summary of the case so far? He kind of he glosses over some things, doesn't he? Um, but he, he gets the, the, the important point in at the front. He's a Roman citizen. In other words, make sure you, you treat him as a, as a Roman citizen. This, this is no common every ordin, uh, everyday ordinary criminal that I'm sending you to. Um, Lysias paints himself in a very good light. Like, I rescued him. You know, I, I, I know exactly what's going on. But we, we also know that he was very confused. He thought at first that he was a, uh, an Egyptian terrorist which, you know, that wasn't the case. Um, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. So I, I tried to administer justice and to figure out what was going on, um, but that didn't work. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law. In other words, this is what they're arguing about. It's theology. It has nothing to do with our Roman legal system. We don't care if they believe in the resurrection or not. It, it's hogwash, you know, to them. But that's, that's what he's telling him this whole case is about, which, again, is important. He's not bringing up that old stuff, the charges that the mob lobbed against him. He's, he's setting the case to Felix, and it is a case of a theological issue. I found that he, uh, he was being accused about the question of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. We don't care about this stuff. We don't kill people for believing this or not believing this. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So as the case continues to Felix, he's saying, we still need charges against this man. And so we basically have to kind of start the process over again, because in the Roman system, you cannot have a trial about this. Nobody can go to jail for believing the things that Paul is believing. Paul successfully basically should have ended this case. If the Jews really had something, this was the time to bring it. They didn't. They got in a fight about the resurrection. The whole thing sort of devolved. Violence breaks out. And Claudius Lysias says, enough of this. We're, we're getting you out of here before something too uh, serious happens. Um, so the soldiers, they bring him according to the instructions. They make uh, part of the journey. It's about 30-ish miles, I think, to Antipatris. And then they continue the next day all the way to Caesarea, uh, another 25-ish miles or so. And then on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, asking Paul. He learned that he was from Cilicia. The reason this is important is because he, again, law and order, he's trying to establish jurisdiction. Is this guy really under my jurisdiction? Should I listen to his case? When he hears that Paul is from Tarsus, okay, that is part of the province, part of the area that Felix is a governor of. He can hear the case. It will go on. Uh, so he says, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. That only makes sense. Uh, we'll, have, we'll have a trial when you're properly accused. But 
there's going to be a delay. Because, again, Jerusalem, you're 70-ish miles away from Caesarea. Uh, they're just doing Pentecost stuff. And think about it. You don't really like Paul, but how do you legally get rid of him? They didn't have any answers for that. They tried this mob justice where they're just going to kill him. They're going to try the conspirators, conspirators where they assassinate him. They don't have a legal way to get rid of Paul because legally, in the eyes of the Romans, he hasn't broken any laws. He hasn't done anything illegal. He hasn't started rebellions. He hasn't taught people to, you know, tear down um, idols and statues of the emperor or anything like that. All he has done is told people about Jesus, told people about his kingdom, which there is room there, and we'll hear about this, to say that this is the reason. But even here, Paul is going to defend himself to the utmost and say, I, I, I'm, I'm okay with the emperor. I teach Jesus as the Messiah, as the king, but I am not stopping people from honoring the emperor. At, at uh, Caesarea, um, the, the same sort of thing is going to happen here, uh, chapter 24. And uh, Felix realizes that, that there's nothing that he can do. Um, what do the Jews say? They say, uh, we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots all among the Jews. This is 24-4. Uh, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So they're not going to come up to Caesarea to have this trial again. They know they're not going to get anywhere. So when they finally do come to accuse Paul, they're trying to go back to some of that original stuff. Because the Roman Empire doesn't care about this. But they do care about riots. They do care about insurrectionists. And so they're going to try to paint Paul as that. And we'll see in his defense next week that he has every answer to that. Um, and from reading Acts, you, you know that already. The, the Roman government has never had a problem with Paul. They've had a problem with the people that caused the riots around him against him. But with Paul himself, as we saw in Ephesus, he, he's done nothing wrong. He, he's, he's okay by us. All right, so we'll continue the trial in Caesarea, and uh, we'll get to Agrippa next week as well. And uh, from Agrippa, things move to Rome pretty quickly, and uh, then we're almost at the end. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.